Do you dream of a healthier life, but education feels out of reach? Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School's Certified Natural Health Professional Program is the perfect entry point to gain foundational knowledge to empower yourself, your family, and your community to live healthier lives. Turn your passion into a career. Visit trinityschool.org for more info now. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. We're all looking for ways to save, especially on medical bills. But where do you start? Unless you're a medical billing expert, finding savings can seem impossible. HealthLock can help. HealthLock is a healthcare technology company that securely connects with your insurance and flags errors like overbilling, wrong codes, and fraud. You can even have HealthLock work on your behalf to get money back from select past bills. Saving starts with knowing where to look. Visit HealthLock.com today before you see another healthcare provider. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Russia has glittering towers and a jet-set elite, but grinding rural poverty, too. It has one of the world's great literary traditions, but throws dissenters in jail for a blog post. Russia's the size of Spain, economically speaking, but is an aggressive, resurgent actor on the world stage, now in defense not of communism, but of tyrants and theocrats. Who is Vladimir Putin, the man who created this new world power through force of will? My guest today, Putin's foremost biographer, Stephen Lee Myers, begins to unravel that question in his book, The New Czar. Myers is a longtime correspondent for The New York Times, first in Moscow, now in Beijing, and he's met Putin more than once. When I shook his hand, I felt this immense coldness and determination. It wasn't scary, he wasn't mean or anything, but it was just, we were there to do business. The new czar tells the complicated history of a man who values stability above all else, who truly believes, along with his constituents, that he, quote, got Russia up off her knees. He's created that impression in part by dedicating a higher and higher percent of GDP to military. It was that money that allowed Putin in 2014 to invade Crimea, redrawing the borders of Europe by violence for the first time since World War II. In his Wall Street Journal review of the book, Stephen Kotkin describes the man who emerges from Meyer's pages as a, quote, snarling stuntman, playing global poker with a wretched hand and presiding over a country in decline. I put those words to Myers because that's not a full picture of the Putin you read about in The New Czar. I think you can come away from what I wrote and come to the conclusion that Kotkin did. I think you can 
read it uh, and see Putin as a sympathetic figure. I wouldn't disagree with some of what he said, but I wouldn't agree with all of it either because it's it always seems like it's about to teeter and fall apart, like Putin can't just keep this going. Yeah. You know, and after the events with Ukraine, when we put on all these sanctions, the sanctions really hurt, and people are like, he won't survive. That one of the wheels is going to fall yeah. off any minute. And, yeah, and, and yet there's a certain resilience, mm-hmm. um, and Stephen Kotkin and I respect immensely. Um, but, you know, people see Putin in different ways. Uh, he's almost like a Rorschach test of, of your views of the world, um, of Russia itself, U.S.-Russian relations, and so forth. When you went to Moscow to start the job there, was that a job you wanted? It, it is, and but it's not something that I expected or I worked for. I didn't study Russian history uh, or language. How did it happen? You know, I covered the Pentagon uh, for a number of years in Washington, and this was in the 90s, and, you know, the Pentagon was busy, though it was before the um, the war on terror era, and the um, Pentagon correspondent did a lot of the reporting on arms control, which for the Soviet period was the big story, really, and so I think there was a bit of a Cold War hangover that people who covered the Pentagon understood arms control, so they went to Moscow as their next posting or their first posting. You know, Bill Keller, uh, who was executive editor uh, of the Times, he, he followed that path. Michael Gordon, uh, great correspondent now with the Wall Street Journal, he did that. So it was it was something, it was a kind of beaten, well, well-beaten path. And mm. So I followed along with it. Though at that time, um, I went and it was the beginning of the uh, Bush administration. Um, this was a new era and Bush talked about trying to establish a new relationship with Russia that would get beyond the cold war um but something happened right oh lots happened <laughs> um but the uh but in the beginning at least if you remember um uh, uh putin reached out to bush and and vice versa first to call him after 9 11 he made the first phone call first foreign leader he didn't get through that night by the way but right. the next morning um bush did call him back and putin authorized an immense amount of cooperation with the united states at the beginning of the war on Afghanistan, intelligence sharing um, in a very concrete way. I think at that moment, there was a feeling that we had entered this common cause with Russia um, in those months right after the 9-11 attacks. When, when you uh, arrive there to do the job, it's what year? You begin in what year? Uh, I was I was studying Russian when 9-11 happened. In preparation for the job. Exactly. I was still in D.C. when the attacks happened, and I went back to work that day in the Pentagon, uh, which I had left a few months before to start my studies. I went to Afghanistan and then came back, picked up my studies, and then in summer of 2002 started in Moscow. What would you describe was the relationship between the U.S. and the Russians then? Um, was this the period as well when Putin, it was like some comment he made about, uh, you know, whatever, however you want to describe it, of Russia potentially entering NATO? He was asked in, in a television interview, I, I believe it was BBC. Uh, and, At that time? And, uh, it, was, it was even earlier. It was, right. it was when he first emerged on the scene as prime minister and then pr- and president-elect. And he said that it was something they wouldn't rule out. It's hard to think back at that period when I think Putin was looking towards the United States and NATO, um, the West generally, um, for a different kind of arrangement, a new um, a new security infrastructure or architecture. And um, there were, you know, people will say that there were missed opportunities on both sides in that case. Um, so when you got there, how would you describe U.S.-Russian relations? 
They were still at that point fairly good, and there was quite a bit of cooperation. Uh, Putin came to the, the ranch out in Crawford, Texas, if you remember, you know, appeared with Bush at the high school there. So I do think that there was still a fair bit of goodwill, even. There were a lot of business deals starting. There was a lot of uh, American companies eagerly investing in the uh, oil and gas industry in Russia. Uh, and so it seemed like there was a lot of... Uh, Potential. Yeah, potential. Um, and then what happened is the Bush administration was very eager to build missile defenses. This has always been a Republican pipe dream going back to Reagan and Star Wars. So with very little notice, after all of this help that Russia had given to the United States in Afghanistan, uh, Bush announced uh, that, that we were going to pull out of the anti-ballistic missile treaty uh, and gave Putin notice only a few days before he went ahead and did it publicly. And that really embittered Putin and gave him pause about what is really the American intentions here. You know, they act nice. Bush is chummy, but, you know, at the end of the day, uh, the U.S. sees itself as the hegemon and is, is really going to control the world. And, and, um, and from there, shortly after, if you remember, they went into the buildup to the war in Iraq, um, which Russia was very much opposed to. The idea of overthrowing another country by military force uh, is something that he fears. And so he, he was pushing back hard against that. I remember when we had an interview, we, the New York Times had an interview with him in 2003, a few months after the invasion, he talked about the consequences and how we didn't foresee how bad this was going to go. And he was largely right. Mm -hmm. Well, when you arrive at a job like that, I'm sure you're briefed about how to go about that job. Who are your contacts? And it might not be as much as you would think. Um, they did give me the time off to study. Um, that time was shortened because of 9-11 and, um, and uh, the work I did in Afghanistan. But um, beyond that, it's, it's more of a collegial process. Uh, I mean, I turned to the correspondents who'd been there before and asked them for advice. Um, there were what other advice did they give you? Um, different, you know, different ones said different things. They said, you should know this person. You should eat at this restaurant. The best advice I got was from Joe Lelybelt, who was the executive editor at the time, who told me not to bother reading the books by journalists. He said, read the literature, understand the books that people are going to be referring to, that Putin himself refers to a lot. It's great advice, and I'm doing that now in China, reading the novels. Mm -hmm. And when you were there, did you feel that you were being watched or you were being... So I remember when the bureau manager, I asked her this question, and she said, they don't come around anymore. First of all, when the Soviet Union collapsed, so did the KGB. And then it was disbanded, and then it was reconstituted in different forms. Um, but under Putin, it's clear the security services under new names have reasserted their primacy. Whether or not we were tapped, I mean, I assume, yes. Um, but I also don't think they really cared that much. I mean, mm -hmm. they could... They could read everything we did. It wasn't they, like in the old days where they were policing, you know, which dissidents were talking to the foreign media, um, which, by the way, they do in China now. Um, they watch that very closely, who's quoted. Um, but towards the end, you know, again, it, when I went, it was a hopeful period. Um, and it, 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 Russia seemed like it was opening up. There were, there were debates in parliament that were going on. Um, as a reporter, it felt wide open. Um, and there was obviously the war in Chechnya, which is extremely controversial and it's very sensitive. There were restrictions on reporting there and so forth. But it didn't feel oppressive the way it did in the Soviet times and now where it seems to be much more uh, hostile environment to work in. You read a little bit about Putin and not a great student, uh, poor family. Uh, how does he get that job? What happens in that country? that he rises to this position? Well, first of all, he wasn't, he wasn't a poor student. He wasn't. Um, he, he, he seemed, in fact, to be quite 
smart and, he was. and quite clever, and he is. Um, but you didn't go to the best schools there, per se. Well, yeah. No, I mean, he was not part of the elite. Um, that's the thing uh, about him. His parents um, were survivors of the siege of Leningrad during World War II. He grew up in a city that was still living with the effects of that, the damage literally from it. His father worked in a, in a train factory, and his mother held odd jobs. They were good Soviet citizens, um, but they weren't, you know, any part of the intelligentsia. He grew up in a pretty typical Soviet experience. It was poverty by our standards, even then in the in the fifties and sixties when he was young. Not somebody you would see at the you know at the onset was going to be primed for this job. He did sort of find a purpose in school through the martial arts. <laughs> you know, he wanted to take up judo and to to stick with the How judo. How old was he then? He was a young teenager, um, and uh, uh, so he would have been like our equivalent of junior high school or middle school. And um, you know, he he took. Uh, he took that quite seriously. So when he put his mind to something, he could do but quite well. But he found the discipline. And discipline is what he, he shows when he's committed to something. There was first a book and then a movie that came out that inspired him to join the KGB. It was called The Sword and the Shield. And it's a pretty propagandistic novel about a, a spy who infiltrates the Nazi army and rises through the ranks from a pretty low position and helps win the war. It was serialized on TV. Um, and this enchanted Putin, as he tells it. And he um, tells the story of wanting to volunteer even when he was um, still a teenager. And, they, you know, the KGB doesn't take volunteers. They, they, um, they come and volunteer you. And, um, you know, there's obviously a screening process to work in the intelligence agencies. But he understood that he had to show some discipline. And he got into university and he got into Leningrad State University, which was a prestigious school. Maybe not the top one. He didn't go to Moscow. But what did he study? Well. Law. Do they have a similar system where you got a law degree and you became an attorney? It's more you study law and you become a police officer or, or you know, maybe a court officer or something like that. It's not a, a law degree that you do after you complete your undergraduate uh, program. So the system there is a little bit different. But, the, um, but you know, he studied that with the uh, goal in mind of joining the security services. And when he was in his fourth year, they came to him and, and said, yes, are you interested? And so he, um, he signed up. Then what happens? He spends how many years in the intelligence services there? From 1975 to 1990 or 91, there's a little bit gray area about when he finally resigned. Um, Several years. Uh, yeah, no, it was 15 years um, of his early life. And, and when you researched that, what kind of work was he doing? I mean, he worked at home for the first part um, for 10 years. He claims counterintelligence, you know, chasing foreign spies. He claims he never worked for the domestic KGB, which was repressing its own people. He held kind of bureaucratic jobs, mostly in Leningrad. And then after a number of years, he was finally assigned to the, you know, advanced training courses that would put you into the pipeline to go overseas. But he got into a fight this first year that he was in this uh, program. And this is the finishing school. When, you, when you're a spy, it's fascinating. The Soviet spies could be tripped up on basic things, like not knowing what a mortgage was, because there was no such thing. And so, I mean, we've all seen the Americans now. You have to really be immersed in the culture to pass. Putin had studied German when he was younger, so when he went to this school, the assumption was he would be in, you know, 
Berlin or Bonn, or he would get one of the premier assignments. But because he washed out early after one year, he ends up in East Germany, uh, which was an ally of the Soviet Union. And he wasn't even in the East German capital, East Berlin. He was sent to Dresden, which was kind of seen as an outpost. It was a small office engaged mostly in cooperating with the Stasi, the East German secret police. It was really just uh, pushing papers and reports back to Moscow. It wasn't a glamorous spying job at all. And he wasn't even undercover, which is, you know, like the, right. the movie that inspired him. You know, he wasn't doing any was James Bond stuff, as, yeah. as he put it himself once. How would you describe his political ascent? I mean, he gets to become prime minister first. Does he have some other office before prime minister? So what happened is when the Soviet Union fell apart, he was in East Germany when the Berlin Wall came down. And this was a very searing experience for him because he watched the Warsaw Pact nations crumble topple their communist regimes, and then lurch into the West. Uh, he, like many others, then retreated back to the Soviet Union, out of work, essentially. And the Soviet army, too. If you remember, there were hundreds of thousands of Soviet troops in East Germany. They all had to go back. Mm -hmm. um, was he married, so, have children at the time? Yes, he did. He was married um, before he went, um, which was a requirement of being a spy, over, working for the KGB, I should say, overseas. You had to be married. They didn't want single officers who could be tempted into uh, liaisons by other uh, intelligence Manahari. agencies. Yeah. Exactly. So... His second daughter was born in East Germany, uh, so they were quite young, and the whole thing comes toppling down, and he has to go back to, um, to Russia. He goes back to Leningrad at the time and took a KGB job at the university overseeing students and foreigners who came to the university. You know, not, it might be a comfortable job, but it certainly wasn't a prestigious one. He was at this point only a lieutenant colonel. He hadn't advanced very far in rank. He'd, he just, in his, th throughout his career, he didn't seem to show a great deal of ambition. <laughs> right. um, going back to your question earlier, you know, it, it's not that he wasn't smart or wasn't capable, but he just didn't seem to have a burning drive um, to, to move up. Sounds like George Bush, actually. And um, at some point, through his job at the university, University comes in contact with a man who uh, was one of the leaders in the democratic movement in, in Russia uh, when the Soviet Union still existed, a guy named Anatoly Sobchak, who eventually became the governor of St. Petersburg, and then after the collapse of the Soviet Union, served for six years until 1996. And Putin served as his deputy, and that's where he began to get political experience. I mean, he, he wasn't a politician by nature. He never has been. But he worked as a very efficient bureaucrat, essentially, for subject. He was in, because of his German and his experience in East Germany, he was the liaison for the city in trying to get new investments to come in. I mean, you remember the communist system collapsed, and you know, Russia had nothing. They didn't have banks. They didn't know how to do basic stuff. It was, uh, it was it, you know, he was put in charge, essentially, of uh, attracting foreign business to St. Petersburg. And um, Did he do well at that? Apparently he did. And some people will tell you he did, um, you know, it was a tough time. And there were, there were assassinations. There, were, there, there, there was a lot of, um, you know, mafia-type activity. A lot. What years were this? This was in the early 90s. A friend of mine, an actress, she was going to be starting some kind of a business over there. They were, they were, they, because of that opening, because of that cleaving of that, of that economy and that market, uh, my, my friend was going to head over there and open up like a skincare line for Russian women. She was a Hollywood actress. And we, 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 I, I helped her and we reached out to different people uh, who knew the business realities over there. And they all said, don't do it. Mm -hmm. And they said, cause they, they said you know, half of the products you're going to send over there are, more, are going to fall off a truck. 
And they said, and transactions and credit cards and money and all the deal. They said it's a nightmare over there in the beginning. You know? It certainly was a nightmare in the beginning. But what was interesting is how many came, um, right. and big companies. Yeah. Um, uh, they wanted to spin the wheel. Procter and Gamble was there, and and uh, you know Otis Elevator. I mean, there was this real heady period when uh, they made this transition and became a capitalist country. Uh, you know, it was painful for a lot of Russians involved, and uh, the system was certainly not well equipped for it, and it was exploited by. Um, by corrupt actors, um, both in government um, and and in the private sector, and the the criminality that you know is is always lurking around. That said, a lot of people became quite wealthy, um, and uh, you know the people who were willing to take that plunge became quite rich. Did he become quite wealthy? That's an interesting story, and it's key to the question about him even today. Um, Early on, he was known for not taking bribes. He was seen as an enforcer who was very loyal to the city. He was the guy you went to to get things done. And so people that knew him got things done. Uh, if you could get to him, you know, it helped you succeed. You know, did people give him gifts? I, I'm, I'm sure things like that happened. He acquired an, uh, an apartment as part of his job, which is a kind of... You know what is that perk. corruption or is yeah oh, it's a perk you know and, and it's part of his salary and you know then he acquired some other land perhaps that was loaned to him from people who were he was helping out. Um, but those people who suggest that Putin has stolen billions I mean they they don't hesitate to use the word with a b billions of dollars from the Russian treasury over the last several years of its economic uh, uh, ascension. Do you think that's true? The um, I I don't doubt. Um, at all, that people around him, uh, including people related to him, became very wealthy because of their access to the decision-making in, in contracts. Um, you know, is he, is he lopping 20% off every contract that's signed by the government and putting it in, in a bank in, in Switzerland or somewhere else? No, I don't think so. I think it's more complicated than that. And, you know, there's the famous stories that came out of the Panama Papers of his childhood friend who I interviewed, um, whose name was on offshore companies worth billions of dollars. And I had a chance before the Panama Papers came out to interview him. And, and I was struck because I was writing about a bank um, that's run by uh, a bunch of people, again, very close to Putin, uh, that's become now one of the largest banks in 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 Russia and, and it's an operating bank it's it's not a fake it's not an offshore I mean they're they've, they're a wealthy you know uh, asset now uh, and his childhood friend has three percent share um, and 3.6 and at the time I remember looking it up and it was more or less worth 300 million dollars and he's a cellist a very accomplished <laughs> musician and um, he's a very well-to-do cellist and he, um, no, he's, I mean, he's traveled the world. He's also the godfather of Putin's oldest daughter. And now he runs a, a conservatory music school in Petersburg that's in this beautifully renovated imperial palace in the city. So I asked him, like, how did you end up with the shares in this bank? Um, and I was working on a separate story on that, but I also wanted uh, to know for, for the book. And, you know, he, he seemed quite absent-minded about it or acted that he was. He's, he said, oh, it was a complicated business. It was involved a lot of lawyers. And it, it's like he didn't quite 
No. And I mean, I would remember how <laughs> I, I bought shares that were worth $300 million. Yeah. But then it turned out, we learned in the Panama Papers that there were a lot of other offshores that we didn't know about uh, that were similar things. And so is that just because, you know, they all had the same accountant and they got great deals on these investments? Is he holding it for Putin? That's certainly the implication that people like him, if not him, um, you know, hold assets for Putin or his or his family. And, you know, Putin each year under Russian law has to declare his income, and it's quite modest. I've heard people say he doesn't need a lot of money. I mean, he has the assets of the state, and, you know, he has several homes he can live in, and, you know, he declares a couple apartments, including the one that he acquired when he was deputy mayor, a dacha near Finland, but, you know, claims to have a pretty... Um, modest, modest lifestyle. Portfolio. Yeah. yeah. Now, when you're there, what is the lifestyle for you? Are you married and you have kids? Did you raise your kids over there? I, for a period I was of time? there with my uh, with my family uh, the first time I went for five years, and I'd been to Russia before I moved there, but the. Um, uh, the, the bread lines and the shortages in um, in supermarkets, you know, could I get fresh tomatoes? I mean, these are the things I was thinking when sure. I was contemplating moving there. And the fact is, is that you could by then. And that was 2002. So the, you know, there, Russia still has a lot of dire po- poverty, especially outside of the cities. Um, but the... Um, the, the cities have really become transformed and they've really become capitalistic. And I was just in Moscow last for the World Cup last summer, um, and which was a dream of mine to see the World Cup um, uh, and to see it in Moscow. And, and the city is just was glistening. Um, and it, it's probably in its thousand year history, never been a better place to live than it is right now. When you got sent on the job, did you take your wife to like her favorite restaurant and you said, honey? Or going to Moscow. The uh, I think that it was a it was um, uh, it was an adventure. You know, to be honest, they, and, they were signed on. Uh, they were, and the uh, for my kids, it's they're really their first memories, and um, you know, they learned some Russian. Um, I didn't put them in a Russian school. I wouldn't go that far, but it's made my two daughters very internationally minded. I think. And when you left after seven years, whose decision was that? Well, first I went for five years the first time, right. and then I went back actually when I was starting to write the book. Um, I was almost about halfway through the book when uh, they had an opening that they had. Uh, they just needed somebody to fill in for a while, and so it was, I was free, and it was an obvious choice for me to go. So that's when I went back, and I was there almost two years that time. But then, but then when you stopped and you weren't there, that was your decision. You just didn't want to do it anymore. Um, you know, we rotate. We, uh, you know, the foreign posts don't last forever. Sure. So you usually go um, for the times three to everybody. Three Three to five years, um, depending on on the the location, on your expertise, you know, availability of other places. Um, I quite liked it. I would have happily stayed. And, um, you know, at at, at one point they decided, you know, they extended me from four years to a fifth year. And I I said yes. And then, um, you know, they found a new correspondent to come. And it was my time to... Um, to rotate out, and at which point I went back to Washington and covered the end of the Bush administration. In the way that Trump supporters, who regardless of what is revealed in the news about his behavior and his dealings, they view that as an expression of you know love for their country, even you know, to stand by the president and so forth. Do they have that over there as well? Does he enjoy some popularity among some critical mass of people? There? He has um, an enormous base of popularity. Um, and there are a lot of reasons for that. Um, from the beginning, I think a lot of people saw him as a dynamic young leader. Um, if you remember, Yeltsin was quite sick and, and uh, drunk uh, uh, 
at the end of his presidency, um, you know, Gorbachev, who was a younger leader, was seen as ineffective and let the Soviet Union follow fall apart. Before that, there was a string of uh, leaders who, you know, died after a few months in office. Brezhnev was there forever. And then here's this young guy um, who comes in. He's quite dynamic. He's quite decisive and forceful. Women found him attractive. Um, and, you know, he, he played that up. He was the macho guy. He wasn't a drinker. You know, he'd fly on airplanes. He went skiing. You know, he was a sportsman. Um, that From the very beginning, you saw that. Um, that that media portrayal of him. I mean, even before it became uh, a propaganda campaign, when he was ready to deal. But he was also acting force, forcefully because at, at the time the war in Chechnya had um, erupted again. It erupted with his uh, rise to the prime minister uh, prime minister's office, which led some people to see that the war somehow was linked to his rise or even orchestrated in order to let him rise. Um, uh, but he responded quite forcefully, and the first Chechen war in the 90s had ended more or less in, a, in a te- technically a ceasefire, but it was a humiliating defeat for the Russians. Um, and, you know, Chechnya descended into a kind of lawlessness. And, um, you know, he intervened and said, we're not going to tolerate this. We're not going to tolerate Chechen independence. And uh, they intervened quite forcefully, um, bloodily. A lot of uh, fighters were killed, but so were a lot of civilians um, in indiscriminate bombing of the capital there. But the Russian people, I th- most people in the political elite in, in 1999 feared having another civil war. Um, but he said, no, we're going we're gonna to not only have one, we're going to fight it hard and we're going to win it. And that proved to be really popular to people. And then he rode on top of that, I mean, in his early years of office, an oil boom where prices uh, rose. Um, he did a lot of macroeconomic things correctly, people will say, um, built up reserves of the state, and, and that minimized some of the, you know, cut, harsh cuts and swings and, uh, and services budget. and stuff. You know, the economy picked up and then became quite wealthy. And then people started to float up as well. And, you know, the a middle, middle class consumer class um, began to grow. I mean, it was there before, but the 90s were so chaotic with the, the uh, instability in the, in the ruble and so the black market. Nobody trusted rubles. Everybody used dollars, you know, and, and he, he revived the economy in a way um, that built him um, a huge foundation, I think, to rule on, even when things went badly. And, you know, he, he continues to rely on that. And part of the propaganda that he has, and, and the propaganda machine is really strong now, they will constantly remind Russians, don't forget how bad it was mm-hmm. in the 90s, you know, and don't forget we have enemies all around us. And, you know, NATO is going to come and take our freedoms away. And they're trying to chew off a piece of our country, he once said. Um, he never quite says who they is, but, you know, it's the outsiders, it's the West, it's foreigners. Uh, how dangerous do you think is the military threat from the Russians, I mean, in their immediate area, in terms of uh, uh, this concept of Ruskimir, that all Russian-speaking territories should be part of Russia? Do you think that's his uh, active agenda now? I don't think that he intends to incorporate all Russian-speaking areas back into the Russian Federation, but I do think he wants to assert 
uh, a special right to influence or have influence over those regions. And that's particularly true with Ukraine. The Russian military, like the country itself, uh, was flat on its back for a lot of years. And um, and it's, it's made progress in becoming a more modern force again. And they've obviously kept up the strategic arsenal they had from the Soviet times. That makes Russia a potential military rival or threat, at least. Um, I mean, I think they've fallen way behind the American military. But nonetheless, they're, they're um, still a capable fighting force. I think that there's an enormous uh, potential for a clash. There was a, a conflict in Syria where we were bombing Russian mercenaries and, and bombed them pretty badly. Uh, they lost, by some accounts, uh, several hundred people, which, of course, had to be hushed up. And, you know, I think Putin is smart to not want to have this go into a hot conflict. I mean, no one's going to win that. And, and one, of, one of my old friends who was a diplomat for many years on the Russia desk um, in the State Department um, said, you know, we avoided war with the Soviet Union for decades. We can do it again um, with Russia. And I thought that was a very wise point. Um, but he's shown now with uh, intervening in Syria that he's willing to project force beyond the borders, which they, they hadn't done in a long time with the exception of Georgia. And people rally behind that. And, you know, there are people definitely who look at him and they see the corruption in the system. They feel it day to day um, there. But people, I think, support him. And, you know, that goes up and down over the, over the years. Um, I don't believe that it's 80 percent, um, which it's been reported to be at some point. Um, you know, when you get that phone call from a pollster saying, you know, how, do you support the president? I'm surprised that anybody says no. Um, but nonetheless. I mean, I think that the popularity is, is quite genuine. And, that, that, and when I was doing the book, I really tr wanted to try to show how that was, that it wasn't uh, – it, it isn't just fake. Um, he has a constituency. He does, yeah. People who want stability like anywhere else. Yeah, and there are also people who are invested in the system, you know. A lot of his close friends and acquaintances from when he was young, his judo partners, are now two of the richest men in Russia. So, you know, the system that he's built on a certain level is functioning. Um, I always joke that Putin always wins. That's Putin biographer and New York Times reporter Stephen Lee Myers. Myers' old job as Moscow correspondent was once held by New Yorker editor-in-chief David Remnick, who arrived in 1988, right before the Soviet Union began falling apart. Food shops said really attractive things like bread. That's what the yeah. shop would say. And there was no bread in it. Right. Or producti, meaning groceries. And there were none of those either. It was really stark. I loved it. Yeah. People wanted to talk to us for the first time in decades, us being the tribe of journalists. They wanted to talk. To hear more from New Yorker editor David Remnick, check out our archive at heresthething.org. Mom met a lot of your demands over the years. This Mother's Day, get her the Bartesian cocktail maker that makes premium cocktails on demand. In just 30 seconds, have your choice of over 60 premium or seasonal cocktails, all at the touch of a button. Get $50 off on the Bartesian cocktail maker now when you buy one pack of cocktail capsules. So, for all the times you made a mess, get Mom the countertop cocktail system that makes premium cocktails without making any mess at all. 
For all the times you begged for soda, get her premium cocktail capsules made with real fruit juice and craft bitters. For all the times you demanded tacos for dinner, get her the Bartesian that mixes margaritas in just 30 seconds. Make mom's Mother's Day and all the 364 days that aren't Mother's Day with a Bartesian cocktail maker at $50 off. Visit B-A-R-T-E-S-I-A-N.com backslash mother now to get $50 off the Bartesian premium cocktail maker. Bartesian, premium cocktails on demand. Do you dream of a healthier life, but education feels out of reach? Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School's Certified Natural Health Professional Program is the perfect entry point to gain foundational knowledge to empower yourself, your family, and your community to live healthier lives. Turn your passion into a career. Visit trinityschool.org for more info now. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Stephen Lee Myers wrote the definitive Putin biography, The New Tsar. Putin's presidency was teed up by Boris Yeltsin, post-Soviet Russia's first leader. Yeltsin was coming to the end of his second term um, when he was looking around for somebody he could handpick. But when he picked Putin the first time, um, that election was open. I mean, Putin only won 50% of the vote. And, you know, it wasn't a slam dunk. And since then, Putin made sure that the ways elections are managed, um, there's no uncertainty in the voting. He stripped them of the competitive uncertainty that makes them truly democratic, either in terms of who can run and then the actual voting itself. Because transitions in Russia have never gone well. Mm. Even during the empire, it was always tumultuous. Mm. Now, in this country, you turn around one day and Vladimir Putin is working on behalf of Trump. Again, these are my words and my kind of glib way of framing this is that uh, Putin is the president-elect's campaign manager, correct? During the summer of 2016, I was back in Washington at that point. I'd, I'd finished the book. The book had come out. And partly because of my expertise in Russia, they asked me to help in the coverage of what seem to be abundant ties between the Trump the, campaign. The, exactly and and um, and Russia and so we worked vigorously on that I wrote several stories that summer about his odd personal affection towards Putin who at that point he'd never met so it was a virtual affection and uh, I was involved in the reporting on Paul Manafort and his ties to the Ukrainian president and also that one of the oligarchs through that that he had done business with um, and with uh, my colleague Eric Lichtbau, we worked vigorously on what appeared to be some kind of communication system with a bank uh, from Russia and the Trump organization. There were a lot of pieces out there, and we worked very hard to confirm them all. And I can say now, I guess, we were quite familiar with the dossier in its various forms as it was being circulated around Washington. And... 
you know, I don't want to get too much into the sourcing on all this, but we worked very hard. And this ended up becoming a story which unfortunately had a headline uh, that said uh, almost the opposite of what the story said. And if I remember exactly right, it was FBI sees no Trump ties to Russia. Um, when in fact, the whole summer of our reporting was showing that there were all kinds of connections. We just hadn't pieced them together yet. And that's, you know, that's what's going on right now. And I think even now there are people still trying to figure out what they, all the connections add up to. But so, to, so for me to get this right, you were saying it wasn't necessarily electing Trump specifically, but disrupting the U.S. electoral process. People still debate this and honestly debate this. Was there an elaborate campaign or instruction or operation a with a code name um, to elect Donald Trump? Um, uh, and there are people who think that and there are people both in this country and in in Russia especially, who think that's ludicrous, um, that there's there's no way that they could have done that, um, which, of course, then your conspiracy-minded people will tell you, well, that's because they're so good at it. Um, but others will tell you the FSB is just really not that good. Look at the assassination, the poisoning in London recently with Scripple and the, um, uh, you know, that was a, the GRU, the military intelligence agency. I mean, it was just completely botched, almost amateurishly botched. So there are skeptics of the view that Trump has been installed like a Manchurian candidate. And, and honestly, I, I will say I don't see the evidence for that yet. Right. Um, but it, what is clear, and there's been some good reporting done on this, that Putin had a personal disdain uh, for Hillary, Hillary Clinton, Clinton and blamed her for the protest that erupted in Moscow when he did this announcement that he was coming back as president and the elections, the parliamentary and then presidential elections around that time. Um, and I was covering Hillary as Secretary of State. I was covering the State Department at the time. Um, it's conceivable there was a secret U.S. plan to overthrow Russia that I didn't come across, um, but I'm pretty confident that they weren't actually orchestrating the protests in the street. They were pretty genuine expressions of, of the uh, unhappiness in the Russian electorate, especially in the elite, in the cities, the hipsters, you know, the young people today in Russia who are quite dynamic. And Putin blamed her for this, and he blamed her for the Panama Papers, that that was meant to embarrass him after the events in, in Ukraine. But another thing you read is Putin did all he could uh, to help Trump in exchange for the elimination of these sanctions. Do you think there's some veracity to that? I don't think you're going to find a quid pro quo on that. I, I will tell you that it was absolutely the number one um, issue uh, for the Russian ambassador to the United States. It's absolutely not surprising that that would have been the thing that he, his first task was to get these sanctions lifted because they're hurting the Russian economy. They are. How so? It dried up the capital. I mean, it's, it's almost the secondary effect of it. Banks overseas were no longer willing to underwrite Russian investments in dollars. So it, it, it really constrained the economy in a lot of ways. And the economy went into negative growth for a few uh, quarters and is slowly coming out of it. But it's involved having to uh, spend a lot more money internally, but also finding new access to capital, which they've done through China and some internally as well. But they pinch and people in, in Russia, especially the elite, love to come to New York. They love to party in, in, in London and other European capitals. Um, they don't want to live behind an iron curtain again in 
inside of, uh, of Russia. And so these sanctions, you know, the ones against people close to him, the judo partners that I mentioned already, they're sanctioned under these. They can't, you know, do business now with the United States mm-hmm. or with United States affiliated companies. And, you know, it can, you can see so how it that stings. Would, it stings. He was surprised by the extent of the sanctions that were imposed after Crimea. And uh, he was surprised by the unanimity that they had in, in, with the Europeans and Japan, by the way. I mean, this isn't just a solely U.S. operation to punish them. And so it's been a priority of theirs to get these lifted, and they they clearly wanted uh, outreach. And, you know, they followed the election the way we all did, and they saw Trump, you know, praising um, Putin and um, eager, it seemed, to make a deal. And Mike Flynn, who was the first national security advisor, had already had some contacts with Russians as well. So it was obvious that they would have reached out to him to see what kind of, can we move quickly on getting these sanctions lifted? What could it take? Did they do everything they could to elect Trump so that they could lift these sanctions? I think it was more of an indirect um, uh, consequence of it as as the intent. I think the original intent, and I was told this on good authority, uh, at least the perception of some people was that Putin wanted to embarrass the United States. Up through the summer, they, like everybody else in the United States, I think, believed Trump had no chance of winning. Yeah. And they saw that um, under Clinton, there was not going to be any uh, chance of an improvement in relations, uh, which I'm not sure was true. I think she might have been more pragmatic in dealing with them once in office. I agree. But they clearly wanted to harm her as much as they can. And when you look at what the, the operation has involved, the hacking, really, um, uh, the leaks to WikiLeaks, the the, you know, the, the emails, um, embarrassing stuff about Sanders or about Clinton. Yeah. Um, you know, what does it all add up to, you know? And, and it's, it's really meant to discredit democracy itself. All the, the, fake, the system. all the fake tweet accounts and Facebook accounts and all them generating it, all those it, All of this is new only because it's social media. Right. They did this in the 60s. If you go back and look at the propaganda they put out during the Vietnam it was War. Um, it was leaflets. It yeah. was books. It sure. was posters. Right. They supported civil rights organizations that were challenging the government, you know, anti-war movement. Taunting the government. Um, exactly. And, you know, what they were doing is essentially an old playbook on Facebook. And one of the things I've wrestled with is that they were pushing on an open door, right? If they created these fake websites to push fake news, you know, they they found a receptive audience to it. Um, and a lot of those repostings, things going viral, were done on American soil. Yeah, they they were, were, the muscle was there. They just gave it a steroid. They know? were sort of, you know, they were exploiting the existing divisions that are out there. And I think they did it quite effectively. Yeah, I agree. I don't know how much they, they relished this victory of theirs because I'm not sure it turned out quite the way they imagined. One of the political advisors very close to the Kremlin just the other day was talking about the supremacy of the Russian system, you know, like why it's a better form of government than, you know, liberal democracies of the West, trying to pretend that it was a purer form of democracy right. because it wasn't cynical, which is ridiculous because there's no political leader more cynical than Vladimir Putin. But nonetheless, this idea that we have this veneer of we're all equal, you know, and, and all, every vote counts. And, you know, our system is full of checks and balances. And, you know, this is the model that everybody should adopt, you know, and they, they hate that. And to the extent that they can show that, no, it's actually 
ugly and it's you know it's big business running things yeah. invested interests and there are these seething racial tensions yeah. and you know the system's rigged against people like bernie they play it's on all that state. and it, going back to your question about like what the intent was i think that was the intent it was to show that democracy isn't some um shining it's the wizard of Oz. yeah it's as flawed as any other system so who are you americans yeah. to tell us um that our system is wrong and and you know i think for putin there was a sense of personal vengeance in it because of the way in his view clinton and the united states the obama administration um broadly you know discredited his triumphant return to the presidency it was personal i think um interesting how it's obama taunting Trump at the White House Correspondents' Dinner that leverages his presidency, and it's Obama taunting Putin that leverages Putin to aid Trump. But I, I want to ask you, uh, in the way, uh, you know, leaders in this country often model themselves after someone else. They'll say someone's a Kennedy Democrat or a Reagan Republican or what have you. In Russian history, did Putin model himself after anybody, as far as you can see? That's an excellent question. People will say, you know, he's a new Stalin. Um, there are some will say he's, you know, a new Gorbachev because he's reform-minded. And drop of, I mean, people have made comparisons. The one obvious one, and it was the reason I, I titled the book the way I did, is he's clearly reaching back to some sort of imperial greatness. Um, you know, people say, oh, Putin's trying to recreate communism or the Soviet Union. He's not. I mean, he, he, he's been saying that for years. Um, you know, he obviously sees uh, and saw the failures of the Soviet system and of communism. But what he wants to recreate is the sense of greatness of his country, pride in his country, which when he was a young boy was putting a man in space, the first country to put a man in space. Um, it was defeating the Nazis uh, in World War II. Um, and th that resonates in Russia much more than World War II does in our country for the obvious reason of the loss, the scale of loss, 27 million people, um, and, and the destruction on the homeland um, uh, in a way that we didn't experience except for Pearl Harbor. But, you know, I, I, I often think that he's not modeling himself to be uh, Peter the Great or, you know, Tsar Nicholas. Um, but I think he, he looks at history as a sort of smorgasbord, you know, a buffet where he will dabble a little bit, that depending on his mood, uh, you know, uh, what his taste is that on any given day, what the situation is. So he might need a little Soviet nostalgia, which you whip up with the, the war in particular. Maybe a little bit of the imperial greatness, the rest restoration of the church, you know, Russia's exceptional place in, in world history as the third Rome. He like professes to be a believer and practices, though somewhat loosely it seems, but he wants to be seen as a religious believer. Uh, he wants to be a tough guy and, um, you know, with the military greatness, you know, which can evoke, you know, Borodino and the War of 1812 or World War II. So he, he picks and chooses as, as is necessary, but the combination is what makes him so intriguing because I think that there's this cartoon version of Putin as a super villain, but in fact, it's a more complicated history there, and I think that he believes that he's created this um, this new Russia that really came out of this you know horrible experience. So I mean, what he called the greatest geopolitical catastrophe of the 20th century, the collapse of the Soviet Union. They always say Russia is up off her knees. You know, there was a sense that she was down, and and he's made her great again. Make Russia great again. Exactly. <laughs> And it's the same when you're looking at a, at a rising China and a more aggressive. I want to get to that. Um, 
you know, a country that's willing to project power, how do you deal with that? Am, I, am, I, mista am I mistaken that China is more anxious to project their power than the Russians are? Uh, no, I don't think that's true. I mean, I, I think that the Chinese are, are very anxious to project power uh, in the areas that really matter to them, which is Taiwan and the South China Sea, though they have opened a base in Djibouti, uh, their first uh, overseas base. And, you know, they, I know that the United States has now, under the Trump administration, declared both of these as potential rivals. If you were president, which one would you be more worried about? There's no question that the biggest challenge for the United States now is China. China. It's the economic challenge. It's the military challenge. It's the trade challenge. I mean, it's it's the issues that you're seeing this this administration deal with, and, and Obama administration was dealing with it as well. And whoever comes next is going to be dealing with it, because China is a country that really firmly believes in its system. destiny, right. and, um, and it's a system that is even more authoritarian than Russia is, and more efficiently authoritarian than Russia is. And that makes them more powerful. Their economy is working better. I was just up on the, uh, the border on both sides of, of Russia and China, looking at the trade. And it's staggering to see the differences um, on the Chinese side versus the Russian. I mean, it's Russian Siberia, so it's always been a forgotten region. But in Irkutsk, uh, for example, now you see signs in Chinese. There's a lot of Chinese trade. There's a lot of timber coming in from Russia, natural resources. Um, and the Chinese market is just so big that it's devouring these resources. And they're happy to have them. And, you know, in the old days, and the Chinese used to sing these songs about the big brother of the Soviet Union uh, helping the little brother, and it, the roles are reversed now. Right. And, you know, Russia and Putin are now a junior partner to China, and that's going to be a very hard pill for them to swallow, I think. When did you get the call that you were going to Beijing? Uh, they asked me, actually, right before the election. Um, and, um, and you're still there now. And I'm still here. Yeah, I've been there almost two years now. I've been did they working. put you in the bubble and want you to learn some Chinese? While you were... I did try to learn Chinese, <laughs> and I'm still trying, and I will be trying for many years to come. And what's the difference in terms of the bureau and the work that's there? Beijing now is much bigger. Uh, it's our biggest uh, foreign bureau um, outside of the two editing hubs in London and Hong Kong. Um, there are seven of us in correspondents in, in Beijing, uh, two more in Shanghai, three in uh, uh, Hong Kong. And, and how's the job different for you? People ask me this, and I'll say again that China is a much more authoritarian place in terms of politics. There is no opposition person you can go talk to um, who will tell you, oh, yeah, the president's wrong. That was a terrible decision, or we should be doing this. I'm, I'm not even talking about people trying to overthrow the government, but just people who will disagree. So you have this almost conformity in the, in the system, and people are very f afraid to speak out against that, even on seemingly non-controversial issues and demographic issues, environmental issues, you know, not the core... Non-critical I mean, like Tibet or Taiwan, Tiananmen Square, those are the three T's they say you're never supposed to talk about. Uh, they're heavily censored. You know, we have to work with virtual uh, private networks even to get on the internet. New York Times is banned there, but so is Gmail, Facebook. I mean, the things that we all uh, rely on for communicating and for work. And, you know, I was detained when I went to a Tibetan region of Sichuan and, and basically driven by the police out of the area and then put on a plane back to the regional capital because they just didn't want me there. And this happens to everybody. It wasn't unique. Um, and, you know, there are regions we can't go to Tibet. Uh, the Xinjiang um, region, which we still can go to, is heavily policed now, um, uh, almost uh, totalitarian-like surveillance. Um, and in Russia, you can still 
talk to people who tell you Putin's crazy. He's driving us into the ground, you know. I was in Irkutsk uh, in October on a trip up to Lake Baikal, and I just happened to walk by the headquarters of this opposition, anti-corruption um, fighter um, named Alexei Navalny, who's a very impressive figure and is just almost daily bashing the government for its corruption. And, you know, he's been sentenced to short terms in jail. His brother got a three-year sentence in jail, but he's still speaking out. He still holds rallies, and his campaign office can openly exist in this uh, provincial town in Siberia. Inconceivable in China that somebody could exist, again, as even as loyal opposition. I remember reading an article where they talked about the uh, high-speed train being built there. And uh, they told these people, you know, here's the timeline and you've got to build this train over this enormous breadth of space. And uh, the men that were charged with this contracting, they did it. They did exactly what they were asked to do. And they did it on time and they did it on budget. They were really kind of emphasizing, you know, the Chinese discipline that way. And then there was a derailment of the train soon thereafter. And some people were killed. And they took a couple of the engineers and they executed them, the people that did that. And I thought, let's bring those guys over to the MTA. Maybe we get some results here on the Second Avenue subway. I hope it doesn't take that extreme to get these. <laughs> ways to work or Amtrak to be more efficient. You know, the, the Chinese system works that way and it, it, it does make it incredibly efficient. They don't have to worry about uh, even e economic things um, uh, that would stymie us. And so, you know, you see this incredible network being built there, new airports, even small towns. Uh, this town on the border I went to had a really glistening new airport, town of 300,000 people. And the high-speed trains are great there. Um, there has been, there was that one really terrible accident. But by and large, it's, a, it's an economy that's booming. And that's, well, that's why I think it's uh, posing such a threat. I mean, Moscow is glistening as a city, um, you know, but the, the, rest of, uh, the rest of the of, of Russia is still struggling in a way that China, you can feel it leaping forward. That was New York Times Beijing correspondent and biographer of Vladimir Putin, Stephen Lee Myers. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. dream of a healthier life, but education feels out of reach. Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School's Certified Natural Health Professional Program is the perfect entry point to gain foundational knowledge to empower yourself, your family, and your community to live healthier lives. Turn your passion into a career. Visit trinityschool.org for more info now. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Hey, guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! 
Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com.